The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Good morning. We are starting a new journey through 1 John. Really excited. 1 John was one of the first books that I ever read through. So whenever I came to know Christ, the the instructions for me were, you're going to read the Gospel of John, and then right after that, you're going to read 1 John. And so those two books were uh, were partnered together. And so 1 John uh, has been a book very near and dear to my heart for a number of years. We're going to be in 1 John for probably about 10 to 12 weeks. Uh, and as always, I want to answer the question, why? Why is it that we're going through 1 John? You know, we don't just kind of uh, take out the index and just, you know, pick a book. Uh, usually there's a, there's a pretty good reason and purpose for it. So three things, three big themes uh, that I'm hoping through our time in 1 John we're going to, we're going to learn. Because uh, if you read 1 John, which we welcome you to do as we're going through this, please read along. Uh, you can incorporate it into your daily quiet time, but you're going to notice that John is very cyclical. He's not a super linear thinker, and so he repeats themes uh, over and over and over again in kind of different ways. So we're going to hit on these themes a lot uh, throughout the book. And so three of these things. First, uh, first John helps us to learn what it means to love. This book helps us to learn what it means to love. Uh, it's saturated with the importance and the necessity of love within the Christian life. First uh, John 3.16, it says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You see, God's love informs us and it empowers us to receive it, but then to reflect it and to show it in practice. And so God's love, it changes our identity into children of God. And from that, his love also, it helps us to renounce sin, hatred, love for the world, uh, the Antichrist. And his love also helps us to, uh, to, to be committed, to live a life of compassion, of truth, of integrity. And so we see that love is a main theme in First John, and it, it really it takes us to school on love. And it says, we're going to teach you and we're going to grow you up on what it means to be a people of love. The second thing that uh, hopefully we're going to learn as we go through the book of First John is it's going to clarify what it means to follow Jesus. First uh, John gives us clear instructions about what it means to follow Jesus and what it doesn't. Uh, it's very easy in our culture to claim to follow Jesus because uh, we have our own validation. Nobody else uh, gives validation or authentication to our claim. And so John comes and he intends to say, this is what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, he, he pushes aside our excuses, our lies, our self-deception, and he paints a very black and white picture of what does it look like in flesh to, to follow Jesus. First John 2, 4 through 6, it says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so we're going to see this throughout the book of First John. That he gives uh, clarity about what it means to follow Jesus. And then the third thing is that the book of First John is intended to encourage and assure us. Right? It's intended to bring assurance and encouragement to us that John is warning those that are uh, deceived 
and those that are false teachers. But in the same vein, he's also bringing encouragement and affirmation to those that are believers. He's intending to affirm them in their faith by saying that you know that you do obey the Lord, that you have the Holy Spirit that has anointed you, that dwells inside of you, that you are walking in the light. And so he gives all of these encouragement that you are children of God. And so all along the way in 1 John that we're going to see him rebuke falsehood and false teachers and false leaders, and we're going to see him affirm truth and those that are genuinely following the Lord. And so we're going to see where is our assurance found? Where should we draw assurance that we are Christians? And, uh, and we're going to see him encourage us that there is an objective reality of that, that we've trusted Christ, but there's also a subjective reality that we are walking in obedience to the Lord's commands and that these things bring assurance into our hearts. So those are hopefully three things. We're going to learn what it means to love, uh, clarity about what it means to follow Jesus, and it's going to bring encouragement and assurance as we go throughout this book. Now, a little bit of context uh, so that we understand what in the world's going on in 1 John. Uh, the book is written by its namesake, John, uh, and he also wrote the Gospel of John that also bears his name. He was called, you know, he called himself the beloved disciple. He knew Christ's love. Now, the Gospel of John is very interesting. It was written so that people might know that they can ha- that Jesus is the Messiah. It's evangelistic, so it's intending to help people to believe in Christ. And the book of First John is written to bring assurance. He says, I've written these things that you might know that you have eternal life. And so John is writing, and John is older at this point in time. People think that he's likely the last surviving apostle at this point. And he's writing from about 85 to 95 AD. He's likely in the city of Ephesus, and he's writing to Asia Minor. Uh, and so that's a little bit of context. Uh, but there are four things where John gives specifically why he wrote the book. Four verses where he says, I've written, and he tells us why. And so... One, he's, he wrote to have a full and complete joy. John wrote this book so that he would have a full and complete joy. First John 1, 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Second, he wrote this to promote holiness. First John 2, 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Third, he wrote the book to protect from false teachers. First John 2, 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And then the last one, is to assure them of their salvation. 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so these are the purposes that John himself says that he writes the book. Now, there are some opponents that he is writing against, and it's really important that we understand these opponents because if we don't, we're not going to understand the importance of the book. We're going to take it out of context. Uh, early on, there was a form of, it was a Greek philosophy that took a, a, a twist and affected Judaism and also Christianity, uh, and it was called Gnosticism. And that word, that Greek word, it means knowledge. And Gnosticism found its greater fulfillment in the 2nd and 3rd century, so about 100 to 200 years later, but it began around this time. There was a leader, Serenthus, who also was a Gnostic and helped lead this. And Gnostics had two things in common. Though they diverged later on, these two things are common in all Gnostics. Is one, they believed that matter was evil, right? They believed that matter was inferior to spiritual reality. And so it didn't matter as much what you did with the body. It mattered more about the spirit. And the second thing is that they believed that salvation was found through this mystic secret knowledge. 
And so they would have a meeting, and those that were initiated into the meeting, they had this secret knowledge, this mystic understanding, and that was what granted them salvation. And so this led Gnostics to uh, what John specifically writes about, is to deny that what they did with the body mattered. That it doesn't really matter what we do in our body because we have this secret knowledge in our spirit, and that's what saves us. It also led them to deny that Jesus was in the body. Because if the body's evil, if this material world is evil, and it's holding us captive like a prison, then what we really need to do is just shed our bodies. We need to shed the flesh. And of course, God wouldn't come in flesh then. He would just take the form or become like a ghost. That he was really God, but he didn't take on the form of a man. And John writes to uh, to flush out this heresy or this uh, this falsehood. That, uh, that Jesus did come in the flesh and that what we do in the body does really matter. And we see this, we see this heresy today. It's the, it's the lie that says, listen, you prayed a prayer, you know Jesus, so what you do with your body doesn't matter. Your sexuality, it's between you and whoever you want, that it has nothing to do with your relationship with Jesus. That how you treat other people, that, that doesn't matter because as long as you're here on Sunday, that you and God are fine. That you can compartmentalize your life into categories. And as long as this category with you and God is seemingly okay, doesn't really matter about the other categories of your life because they're distinct and God, of course, wouldn't meddle with those areas. And we see that John is going to break down that lie and show that there are no categories of God, that everything is laid bare unto him, and what we do with our body matters uh, critically. It reveals whether we are rightly connected with God. So to give, uh, hopefully that gives a little bit of context as we go and and dive in. We're going to be in the first four verses of the book today. So 1 John 1, 1 through 4. You can read along with me. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is God's word. So we're going to talk about three things, three things that will help us uh, understand this passage. First, that Jesus is the true God-man. Jesus is the true God-man, and we can experience his reality. Second is that Jesus creates unity, and we experience this unity through the gospel. And third, Jesus brings joy And that we pursue this joy through giving our lives away. We pursue this joy through giving our lives away. So the big idea is that Jesus is real. Hallelujah. We become joyfully one as we believe and proclaim his reality in our lives. We become joyfully one as we believe and proclaim his reality in our lives. And so first, we're going to look at Jesus is the true God-man. We can experience his reality. So who is Jesus? is Jesus? Right? That's a question that at some point all of us hopefully have wrestled with. But I remember for me, that was a question that I began to wrestle with when I was around 15, as I was asked that question. And I had people that had told me who they thought Jesus was, but I had to answer that question personally. Who do I believe Jesus is? And there's lots of different answers out there. 
There are those that are apathetic to that question. Who is Jesus? Well, it doesn't really matter for me. I don't care who Jesus is because it has no practical bearings on my life. And so, you know, what, what does it matter? I'm going to be indifferent, and until it actually practically affects my life, I'll be agnostic about it. There are others that are cynical about the question, who is Jesus? And they say, well, Jesus is a figment. Jesus is a myth. Jesus never existed, and if he did, then he was, uh, he was exaggerated. And so we can't really trust who Jesus is. They're cynical about that question. Others will say, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus was a good moral teacher. He had, he had good ethics. And so, you know, we can, uh, we can discard the miracles. We can discard the claims. But we, we like his ethics of love and of compassion, of humility. We'll, we'll keep those things. Others, you know, like uh, our, you know, Islam, Islam will say, well, Jesus was a prophet. He pointed the way to Allah. And they will claim that Jesus was not God. Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, they'll say that, well, Jesus was a created being. You know, he exemplified what it looked like to be God, but he wasn't fully equal with God. So there are lots of different answers to that question. Who is Jesus? What you believe about Jesus will radically impact your life. It will change the course of your life if you, if you truly are willing to go where the answers will lead you. Because that's the thing. The real question is, if Jesus is who he says he is, are you willing to follow? Because most of us, most of the excuses come because we don't want to submit underneath the authority. Now, I think that there's four options for who Jesus is. C.S. Lewis started this, and I think that it was perfected later on. But four L's, that Jesus is either liar, lunatic, legend, or Lord. He's either liar, lunatic, legend, or Lord. Right, the first thing is that Jesus is a liar, that he was just a con man, that he came out and he was a really good con man because he tricked all of these people into believing that he was the Messiah. Or Jesus is a lunatic. He really is crazy and he's self-deceived. And he was self-deceived enough to where he could get that a, a huge crowd to follow him. Now, for anybody that actually has read the Gospels and actually studied Jesus in any depth, those two fall uh, hollow. They seem empty. Because I've known some people in my day that are serial liars, and, uh, and there's not a lot of commitment. Instead, they are covering their tracks constantly to cover their lies. But when you look at the story of Jesus, you can't help but find consistency and commitment and integrity. When you find someone that has lunacy, that they're crazy, you don't have the moral virtue and integrity to go to a cross, to give your life for others, to endure persecution in the midst of, uh, for, for those that are broken, for those that are hurting. You have such high emotional intelligence and as well as virtue found in Christ. that It seems totally um, incompatible with the characteristics of someone that is a liar or a lunatic. And so the, the third option that we are left with is legend, right? Well, I mean, Jesus was a legend that he maybe was a historical person, but later on people just embellished. I mean, you play the telephone game, right? You whisper in their ear, and then, you know, before you make it halfway around the room, it's totally changed. That, of course, must have been the way that they transmitted this and the way that Jesus was, except that's exactly what John is writing to contradict. We have textual evidence. One of my favorite things in, in when I was in college is, because this is a question that really led me to dig deep, um, is that we took Greek for two years, and the second part of uh, the second year of Greek, we got to take textual criticism. 
And so what was so fascinating about that is that we got to go and we got to examine what are the, the, the scrolls or the evidence, the, the papyri that we have that show us that are closest back to the originals. We don't have the originals that the Bible was written in. We don't have the original Greek manuscripts, but we have very close. We have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts. And even within that, we have one that's called P52, and it is dated to 125 which its original was written in in 96. So that's within 30 years we have a copy of what the original was. Now for legend to happen, legend happens over time. It takes second, third, fourth generations. It takes the eyewitnesses dying off before legend begins to become pervasive, at least pervasive enough to where people will really give their lives for what they believe to be true, even if it's false. But we see that from John's own mouth here, that he is saying, I'm an eyewitness, and this is true. I mean, look at what he's saying. He's saying, we, I mean, notice in the passage, he's constantly talking about this plural, we, us, are, why? Is he saying that he's likely the last apostle, and he is bringing the full weight of apostolic tradition. He's saying, listen, it's not just me who proclaims this. Every apostle before me proclaimed this, and some to their death. And he's saying, listen, I saw him with my eyes. I touched him with my hands. I heard him with my own ears. And what I have heard, I am proclaiming to you. Now hear this. People will die for what they believe to be true, even if it's a lie. People will not die for what they know to be a lie. People will not willfully die for what they know to be a falsehood, and hear this, the, the disciples, they were the only ones to know for a fact whether Jesus was who he said he was or if he was a, a sham, whether he was a charlatan. And many of them go to their deaths proclaiming that he was who he said that he was. And it's this testimony that we receive. It's this testimony that John passes down to us, that Jesus is real, that he is true, that he is not a legend but that he is Lord, that he is Lord. And it's this that John is so emphatic to impress in our hearts and our minds, is that if Jesus is Lord, then that, that has ramifications for our lives. So we can no longer live as we please, but instead we must honor the one whom created us and came into flesh. And John will say, listen, not only did Jesus live, but Jesus was fully man and fully God. And that's the emphasis. I mean, do you hear it right? He's saying that we heard him, we touched him. Jesus was in flesh. He took on human form. He didn't just take the form of man. He became man. He became humanity. The, the eternal son strapped on flesh. And so he was fully man, but he was also fully God. And this is what John says, that which was from the beginning, the word of life, eternal life, which was with the Father and became manifest to us. It means become disclosed. And we see this, this is what he wrote in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right, John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the one only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so John proclaims that Jesus is fully God and fully man. I think there's a quote from John Piper that gets why often we don't like this or why people reject this. And hear what he says. 
He says, many are willing to believe in Christ if he remains merely a merely spiritual reality. But when we preach that Christ has become a particular man in a particular place, issuing particular commands and dying on a particular cross, exposing the particular sins of our particular lives, then the preaching ceases to be accessible for many. I don't think it is so much the mystery of a divine and human nature in one person that causes most people to stumble over the doctrine of the Incarnation. The stumbling block is that if the doctrine is true, every single person in the world must obey this one particular Jewish man. Everything he says is law. Everything he did is perfect. And the particularity of his work and word flow out into history in the form of a particular inspired book written in the particular languages of Greek and Hebrew that claims a universal authority over every other book that has ever been written. This is the stumbling block of the incarnation. When God becomes man, he strips away every pretense of man to be God. We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient because this one Jewish man says we are all sick with sin and we must come to him for healing. We can no longer depend upon our own wisdom to find life because this one Jewish man who lived for 30 obscure years in a, little in a little country in the Middle East says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When God becomes a man, man ceases to be the measure of all things, and this man becomes the measure of all things. This is simply intolerable to the rebellious heart of men and women. The incarnation is a violation of the Bill of Human Rights written by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It is totalitarian, it is authoritarian, imperialism, despotism, usurpation, absolutism. Who does he think he is? He thinks that he is God. John wants us to know and experience this God that has humbled himself to take the form of man. This is why he proclaims it. He says, I experience these things. And John says, I experience these things for a purpose not simply for myself, but to bear witness to you, to tell you the reality of the Son of Man, that he has come into this world, and that it is not a myth, but it is real, and that you can experience him as well. You see, we trust John's experience, but John would say, don't just trust my experience. Open up your lives to experience him for yourself, that he is alive, that he is reigning, and that he desires for those that would draw near to experience him to know his love, his grace, to feel his conviction and his reassurance in your life. And so I would encourage you, if you have not done that, open your life to receive him. Open your heart to feel him. He desires a relationship with you. The second thing that we see in this is that Jesus creates unity. Jesus creates unity. We experience this in the gospel. One of the themes that he touches here in First John is he says that, He's proclaimed this, that we might have fellowship, and that his fellowship is with the Father. And so throughout, especially in the first chapter, he is emphasizing this theme of a fellowship. It seems critical and extremely vital to John that we know what fellowship is and that we have this fellowship. And so what does he mean by fellowship? What is it? Fellowship is a, a sharing. It is a commonality. It is a, a union of our lives together. And I hear this quote by, by Daniel Aiken. He says that fellowship entails the joy and oneness in a group of people who are in accord regarding something that really matters. You share common values, beliefs, and goals. You love the same things, and you pursue a common agenda. 
This is what fellowship is. And he says that all fellowship first starts, all true fellowship starts with God. He says that God the Father has a fellowship with the Son, and that this fellowship includes the Spirit. And think about this unity, this oneness that they have within the Godhead, within the Trinity. That it, their bond has been since before time existed. And think about the, the closest bonds you have. Sometimes they are the longest. They are those that you have seen through thick and thin, that you have spent many years together with. And think of the bond that is with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that for eternity past they have been with one another, supporting, encouraging, loving one another, serving each other. And he says that they, they welcome us into this kind of fellowship. And the reason that this fellowship exists is because they're family. They're family. They are one. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. But yet they are all one, and they are family together. And that they welcome us into this family. Just uh, you know, getting married only two years ago and having our first child, you know, it it's been as I've reflected, especially in light of this passage, I've began to understand more the depth of what fellowship is of this common life that you share together. When you have, when you spend twenty four seven with somebody, when you wake up together, when you see each other, when you're looking good and when you're not, when you, you know, when you're going through difficult days and good days, and when you have this common purpose together, when you're laboring together, and then when you see this new life that's brought forth, and, and it's it creates this bond, it creates this intimacy, this oneness, and it's it's amazing. It's encouraging. But at times it's, it can be difficult. But Jesus says, I want you to experience this fellowship. How? By coming into my family. I want you to experience this union by, by joining me. And he says in John 1.12, he says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You see, when you turn from your sin, when you repent of your sin and you place your faith in Jesus Christ and his death for you personally and his burial and his resurrection, it says that you now are given the right to become a child of God, that you're no longer orphaned, but instead you are adopted by the King of Kings, that he gives you his Holy Spirit and you are one with him. And your identity is changed. And hear this, that creates a bond, a fellowship, a unity that surpasses everything else. That is your primary identity now as a child of God. And you forever are bound together in that as, as security, as encouragement. And hear what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 48 through 49. He replied to this man that says, blesses the womb that bore you. And he said, he replied to the man who told, who told him, he said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It is, it is the people of God that are our true fellowship, that we come together. I don't know, have you experienced that yet? For me, it's been such a joyful experience in my life. I've gone to different places and I've been in different fellowships and there's a sweetness about it to see the Spirit of God that just binds us together, that it surpasses race, it surpasses age, it surpasses socioeconomics, that it, it is far superior than anything that would divide us and how it brings us together. 
is this oneness, this deep commonality that is found through our adoption as children of God. As it, he says, experience this. That it starts with God, but that it, it is found together with us. And this is the witness that the world is so desperate for. The world is so hungry to be in a place where they are loved, where they are accepted, where they are cared for, where they are known. And this is what the church is called to be. Is that we are called to be a people that know others in transparency and truth, but press into love. Right? That's what the fellowship of God is with us, is that he knows us fully and yet he loves us completely. And he presses in and he calls us into his shared mission to reach the world. And this is what we do for one another is that we, are, we open our lives to each other. We don't hide in isolation. We don't put on a mask, but instead we are transparent to each other. And we, we say, this is who I am, and we labor together to help each other. We support each other. We encourage each other. We know one another, and we love. And man, this fellowship is so vital. It's so vital for your life. It saddens me so much because often the sin wrecks us, and it wants to isolate us. I mean, Satan is a lion seeking out whom he may devour. And one of the things that he does is he isolates you, and then he begins to lie. He begins to accuse, and you feel all alone, and sin becomes deceptive, and you make poor choices. Man, fellowship guards us from ourself. As it went around other believers, it helps us to see the foolishness and the sinfulness within our own heart. And it's these guardrails that protect us. But not only that, it gives us strength. Man, there's been times where I've been discouraged and I'm in fellowship and they don't, my brothers and sisters don't necessarily even need to say anything, but to see their passion for Jesus encourages me. It helps me to continue on when there are difficult days. But also it, it humbles me because I see, I see my own brokenness, but I, I also see, I have brothers and sisters that love me enough to where they'll speak the truth to me. They're going to tell me when they see pride and when they see selfishness, not because they're trying to look for sin in my life, but because they love me and they want me to pursue Jesus. They care for me deeply. We need these kinds of people in our life. We aren't okay on our own. You have to believe that because if you think that I've, I'm fine on my own, you're going to discard the fellowship and you're, going to, you're not going to live the life that God's called you to, the abundant life that he would lead you into. And so we need the fellowship, and the world needs the fellowship. Most of the time, people come to Christ through relationship and seeing that relationship in a community. If you think about your friends, if you think about those that you know that are outside of Christ, the most likely way they're going to come to know Christ is through you being in communion with other Christians and inviting them into that community. As you invite your non-Christian friends to experience that community, it's going to be transformative because they're going to find ideally they're going to find a group of people that love them, that listen to them, that bless them. And that's going to be what changes. That's when it, what opens their heart is that as they begin to understand fellowship with us, they're getting a picture of what it means to have fellowship with Jesus. And so fellowship is so critical and that this happens through the gospel. The third and last point is that Jesus brings joy Jesus brings joy, and we experience this as we give our lives away. The pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of pleasure is not optional. You have to pursue pleasure. Now, I say that because I think it's a basic fact of life. I think that every decision you or I do is based on that, is that we think that it will be most 
beneficial, most joyful to us. Even our, our avenues of self-denial. We deny ourselves because we think that there is something better that is worth denying ourselves for. Now, we can be wrong about that. We can think that this will truly bring me joy and it be wrong. I mean, there's lots of times where we think that, well, I think that, you know, binge eating this ice cream is going to give me lots of joy. Well, man, in the moment, it might be very joyful, but later on, you realize that was a bad decision and not as joyful as you thought. There's lots of things in this life that where we, we, we can, we pursue joy, but we can pursue that joy wrongly. We can, we can be deceived about what will bring us true and lasting joy. But our pursuit of joy, I think, is a basic fact of life, is that we pursue joy. And this is what John, John would say that he's pursuing joy because he's pursuing Jesus. As that he, he, he would say that he is a hedonist, but a Christian one. And Christian being primary is that he is pursuing his greatest pleasure in Jesus Christ. And that you don't separate that. That you don't separate that. that. That Jesus invites us to experience joy in his presence through pursuing him. You see, when Jesus says, take up your cross, he, he says, take up our cross. Why? Because we have found that he is more beautiful than this life. That he is the pearl of great price that we are willing to sell everything for in order to get him. That's why we can say no to other things is that Jesus doesn't call us to self-denial for the sake of self-denial. He calls us to deny ourselves because there is something better that he has for us. And this is what John writes, as he says, listen, I have written this so that my joy would be complete. And what is John doing here? He's writing, he's giving his life away to this church. This is a church, these are people that he knows. He writes to them as little children. He is intimate with them. He is invested into their lives. And this book is a culmination of his ministry to them. He's writing to them and he's saying, listen, I've invested my life in you. I'm writing this. I'm giving my life away because there is more joy in that than in trying to save my life and trying to hoard it and trying to keep it. I would gladly give my life away because I know that in the Lord there is far more joy. And this is what we see in in. In the Old Testament, the Psalm, Psalm 37, 4, it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And Psalm 16, 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, this joy isn't fickle. This joy isn't circumstantial. This joy is an intentional pursuit that it, Joy is an overflow of trust that stems from our belief that God is sovereign and he is good. Joy is an overflow of trust in the belief that God is sovereign and God is good. You see, this is what motivated Jesus to the cross. In Hebrews 12, it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. Jesus saw and believed that God is sovereign and God is good. Therefore, he was able to have joy even in his darkest hour. Even when every circumstance seemed against him, he was able to find joy in God's sovereignty and his goodness. And that led him to give his life away. It led him to invest in, in us for our salvation. And so as we, as we close, well... I want to read this quote first, and then we're going to close. Got ahead of myself. 
C.S. Lewis, I think, puts this in a stark, uh, in a clear contrast. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, and when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. Don't you see, this is what would deny, this would help, this is our motive for saying no to sin. Is it when, when sin crops up and says, you should live your best life now, you say, no, there's more joy in giving my life away and living for my, my life to come. Is that we continue to say, no, you know what's better than satisfying myself? You know what's better than just basking in entertainment or financial um, prosperity? It's better to give my life away. It's better to serve others. It's better because there's more joy here and now, but also in the future. And so my challenge is that that as we go from this place, that we would take this message and that we would we would fight this way together because it is a fight. Sin is deceptive. And listen, it, it gives instant gratification, but it robs us of joy. It robs us of full and lasting and permanent joy. And so we fight by choosing to say no. God's way offers more permanent, lasting joy. He is better than whatever it is. And so what does it look like to give your life away? Who does it look like for you to give your life away to? Who is God calling you to say no to certain areas in order that you would invest in them? And so let the Holy Spirit, as we come and we sing our last song, uh, my encouragement for you is just is to ask the Holy Spirit to come and that He would He would lead you because He's going to put people on your heart. He's going to convict you of sin that He wants you to say no to in order that you would say yes to Him. And so I'd ask that as we sing the song, just let the Lord do work with you. Our role is that we would just be submitted underneath him. We would yield to him. And if you're here and you haven't trusted Christ, and God wants you to experience the joy that is found in his presence. And so if you would, open your heart. Allow him to, to come in. Receive him, that you would be a child of God. Let us pray. Father, so grateful that you are real. That you're not a figment of our imagination. You're not a legend. You're not a liar. You're not a lunatic. God, but you are Lord. And because of that, you can save us. You can rescue us from our broken state, God, that you can give us joy and pleasure. You can help us to say no to the deceitfulness of sin, that you can use us to impact this world, God, that things can change and that they can change within us and through us. And so use us, God, we ask. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.